Welcome to the October 5th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, germline pathogenic variants of the DDX41 gene are relatively common in the general population and linked to higher risk of AML and MDS. Up next, bertamumab plus standard of care in light-chain amyloidosis. In a post-hoc analysis of a phase 3 trial, high-risk patients treated with this humanized monoclonal antibody had a significant improvement in time to all-cause mortality. Finally, new insights on rare movement and neurocognitive toxicities that are observed after BCMA-directed CAR T-cell treatment, plus a case report on successful chemotherapy-induced reversal of this adverse event in an elderly man with relapsed multiple myeloma. Our first research article is titled, Prevalence and Significance of DDX41 Gene Variants in the General Population, and the first author is Shruti Chilor Kovalakam of the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. First, some background. We know that inherited variants in the dead box RNA helicase 41 gene, or DDX41, are associated with increased risks of myeloid neoplasia. In fact, pathogenic germline mutations in DDX41 are considered to be the leading cause of familial MDS and AML. However, there are significant knowledge gaps regarding the overall prevalence of these mutations, magnitudes of risk they confer, and pathogenic mechanisms. Regarding prevalence, earlier this year in blood, Makashima and co-authors reported that DDX41 pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants conferred a risk of myeloid neoplasms, reaching 49% by age 90. While informative, that risk estimate may be influenced by the cohort studied, which included first-degree relatives of patients with DDX41 mutated AML or MDS. Overall, there remains considerable uncertainty regarding the magnitude of the risk conferred by DDX41 mutations and the biological mechanisms by which they contribute to the development of leukemia. The present research article by Kovalakam and co-authors sheds new light on prevalence of DDX41 variants, risk estimates, and disease pathogenesis. The study is based on an analysis of sequencing blood DNA from participants in a large biomedical database and research resource known as the UK Biobank. From more than 450,000 UK Biobank participants, the investigators identified non-synonymous germline variants of DDX41 in 3,538 samples. Overall, there were 452 unique variants, the most common of which resulted in amino acid change M155I, which was found in 394 samples. Of note, the investigators found marked differences in variant prevalence among participants of European versus non-European ancestry. 55 variants were unique to participants of non-European ancestry, and most had never before been reported. 34 of 1,059 DDX41 germline pathogenic variant carriers developed AML or MDS, with an odds ratio of 12.3 when compared to control group of UK Biobank participants without any DDX41 germline variants. Truncating and start loss in variants conferred approximately twice the risk of missense variants. Odds ratios were 15.12 and 12.89 respectively for truncating and start loss variants, and just 7.5 for missense. 
Over a follow-up of approximately 13 years, the absolute risk of developing MDS or AML was 3.21% for DDX41 germline pathogenic variant carriers, compared to only 0.26% for people lacking these variants. The risk was highest in male DDX41 germline pathogenic variant carriers at 5.50% versus 1.37% in female carriers. Interestingly, the prevalence of clonal hematopoiesis was not higher in the DDX41 germline pathogenic variant carriers, but instead, clonal hematopoiesis was more common prior to development of sporadic MDS-AML in patients with DDX41 pathogenic variants. Authors say this suggests DDX41 mutant MDS-AML follows an evolutionary path distinct from sporadic MDS-AML. Importantly, DDX41 germline pathogenic variant carriers at increased MDS-AML risk could be identified by two parameters, namely mean red cell volume and somatic DDX41 mutations in blood DNA. There was no significant difference in the somatic mutation rates between sporadic and DDX41 mutant AML, suggesting that genomic instability is not a driver of DDX41 mutant AML. Finally, it's worth noting that DDX41 germline variants were significantly associated with MDS and AML in multivariate regression, but by contrast, they were not associated with lymphoma, myeloproliferative neoplasms, or other malignancies. In a commentary, Christopher R. Riley and Andrew A. Lane of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, say this study provides several findings regarding DDX41 germline pathogenic variants that are novel and clinically relevant. First is the 3.21% absolute risk of MDS-AML among DDX41 germline pathogenic variant carriers. This finding, which is lower than previous estimates, is derived from a large population of nearly a half a million individuals with diverse ancestry backgrounds and minimal relatedness. Second is the observation that MDS-AML risk is influenced by the DDX41 variant type, with truncating and start-loss variants conferring more risk than missense variants. Third is the provocative finding that about 1 in 430 individuals in this population were carriers of DDX41 germline pathogenic variants. That has implications for hematopoietic stem cell transplantation guidelines. Specifically, the commentary authors say, one needs to consider the potential for inadvertent donor-to-recipient transmission of DDX41 germline pathogenic variants from both related and unrelated stem cell donors. Also compelling, they say, is that the findings suggest hematologic indexes or somatic sequencing could be used to identify individuals at higher risk of MDS-AML. Altogether, these findings significantly advance understanding of the prevalence and malignancy risks associated with DDX41 germline pathogenic variants. Importantly, they also demonstrate the value of using population-level data to address clinically relevant questions regarding germline predisposition to hematologic malignancies. The next article is Bertamumab plus standard of care in light-chain amyloidosis, the phase 3 randomized placebo-controlled vital trial. The first author is Maury A. Gertz of Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Amyloid light-chain amyloidosis, or AL amyloidosis, is a rare and often fatal disease caused by misfolded immunoglobulin light chains produced by an underlying plasma cell dyscrasia. Light chains form aggregates that accumulate as deposits in vital organs, most commonly the heart and kidneys. 
This can lead to cardiac and renal impairment. Mortality risk can be assessed using the Mayo Clinic staging system, which incorporates measurements of two cardiac biomarkers, troponin T, an N-terminal pro-B-type natriuretic peptide, and the FLC-DIF, assay which estimates the level of amyloidogenic light chain synthesis. Patients with Mayo stage 4 disease are at high risk of early death, with a median overall survival of less than six months. Standard treatments for AL amyloidosis, aimed at the underlying plasma cell dyscrasia, consist largely of repurposed myeloma regimens that incorporate agents such as bortezomib and lenalidomide. The anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody daratumumab in combination with bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone is often used in patients with newly diagnosed AL amyloidosis. However, overall survival was insignificantly improved in a 2021 report in the New England Journal of Medicine based on a median follow-up of 11.4 months. Also, use of this regimen is constrained, as daratumumab is not recommended for patients with advanced cardiac AL amyloidosis outside of the clinical trial setting. Thus, there remains an unmet need for treatments that may improve survival in patients with advanced AL amyloidosis at high risk of early death. That leads us to the present research article on bertamumab, an investigational humanized monoclonal antibody designed to neutralize light chain aggregates and deplete amyloid deposits. Bertamumab was evaluated in a phase three randomized clinical trial known as VITAL. The study included 260 patients with newly diagnosed AL amyloidosis, randomized to receive either bertamumab or placebo added to standard of care therapy. The study was terminated following an interim analysis which suggested there was no significant difference between arms regarding the primary composite endpoint of time-to-all-cause mortality or cardiac hospitalization. However, a post-hoc analysis of the study, published in the current issue of Blood, tells a different story. The analysis demonstrates an improved time-to-all-cause mortality in patients with Mayo stage 4 disease. In other words, the patients at highest risk of early death. Approximately 30% of vital study participants had Mayo stage 4 disease. That's 77 patients out of 260 patients total. All-cause mortality at month 9 was chosen as the efficacy endpoint for the post-hoc analysis. That was based in part on median survival of 8.3 months in the Mayo stage 4 placebo group. Time to all-cause mortality at month 9 in Mayo stage 4 patients was improved with bertamumab with a hazard ratio of 0.413, a 95% confidence interval of 0.191 to 0.895, and a log rank p-value of 0.021. The proportion of patients surviving at 9 months was 74% for bertamumab and 49% for those who received placebo. Also in patients with Mayo stage 4 disease, Treatment was associated with less deterioration in physical function and improved cardiac function as assessed with the six-minute walk test. Investigators said this potential benefit is not likely due to an improved hematologic response, consistent with bertamumab's mechanism of action. There was no significant difference in the proportion of patients achieving a very good partial response or better at three months. Safety outcomes included generally similar rates of treatment emergent adverse events among Mayo stage 4 patients in the bertamumab and placebo arms. Also in the current edition of Blood, Antoine Huard of the University Hospital of Toulouse in France provides a commentary on this study that might be described as cautiously optimistic. 
Huart says the outcomes reported for patients with Mayo stage 4 disease have to be interpreted with great caution. That's due to the unplanned, post hoc nature of the analysis. But he says these findings raise hope for the first time that a molecule targeting amyloid proteins may be beneficial in treating the most serious cases of AL amyloidosis. He adds that the study requires further validation due to the small number of patients and short follow-up. So what's next for bertamumab? A confirmatory study called AFFIRM-AL is underway. The Phase 3 randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial is currently enrolling patients with Mayo Stage 4 AL amyloidosis. The enrollment target in AFFIRM-AL is 150 participants, and the estimated completion date is June 2024. Finally, new insights into a rare Parkinson's disease-like movement disorder associated with BCMA-directed CAR T-cells. In a letter to Blood, Philip Karshinia and co-authors provide data for Massachusetts General Hospital on the incidence, presentation, management, and outcomes of neurotoxicities following BCMA CAR T-cell treatment. That includes two patients presenting with Parkinsonism-like symptoms. In a second letter, Charlotte Graham and co-authors provide detail on one of those patients, including symptom resolution following treatment with chemotherapy. Two BCMA-directed CAR T-cell products have been FDA-approved, Idacaptogene Viclusal, or Idacel, and Siltacaptogene Autolusal, or Siltacel. Both are associated with high response rates and remarkable progression-free survival in pivotal trials. Downsides include prolonged cytopenias, cytokine release syndrome, or CRS, and immune effect or cell-associated neurotoxicity, or ICANS. Another, less common complication is the development of Parkinsonism-like symptoms, referred to as motor and neurocognitive toxicities, or MNTs. In the pivotal CARTITUDE-1 trial of IDACEL, MNTs were reported in 6% of patients. MNTs have also been reported with Siltacel, though less frequently. MNT risk factors in CARTITUDE trials included high chimeric antigen receptor expansion, high tumor burden, grade 3 or greater CRS, and ICANs of any grade. Post-approval, there has been little new information regarding MNTs and only limited guidance on management. Karshinia and co-authors help fill the gap regarding real-world experiences with neurotoxicities, including MNTs. They searched Massachusetts General Hospital records and identified 76 patients with multiple myeloma who received BCMA-directed CAR T-cells between 2016 and 2023. Of those patients, 31, approximately 41%, developed new neurological symptoms after treatment. The symptoms were severe in six of those patients, or 7.9% overall. Mild ICANs, or grade 1 to 2, typically included headaches, modest confusion, and expressive aphasia. Severe ICANs, grade 3 to 4, was marked by substantial encephalopathy that led to profound confusion or impaired arousal. Parkinsonism-like symptoms were seen in 2 or 2.6% of the 76 patients receiving BCMA-targeted CAR T-cells. Both developed symptoms after a full recovery from acute ICANs. These MNTs, the Parkinsonism-like symptoms, were not specific to IDACEL or Siltacel. One patient experienced confusion and bradykinesia with increased muscle tone 22 days after IDACEL infusion. FTG-PET showed bilateral hypometabolism in the basal ganglia. Symptoms worsened despite several treatment approaches, 
including corticosteroids, the IL-1 receptor antagonist Anakinra, or the combination of levodopa and carbidopa. This patient eventually died from bacterial and fungal sepsis. The second patient developed symptoms 19 days after siltacel. These symptoms included confusion, bradykinesia with hypomemia and hypophonia, postural instability, and mild tremor. The letter from Graham and co-authors describes successful chemotherapy-induced reversal of those symptoms. Within two weeks of starting dexamethasone and anakinra, the patient's confusion and bradykinesia improved. And after four weeks of high-dose cyclophosphamide to decrease the number of circulating T-cells, the patient's postural stability fully recovered. Both patients had a tumor response following BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy, and there was no association between ICANs and treatment response or overall survival. The development of MNTs could be due to on-target, off-tumor effects against BCMA-positive cells in the basal ganglia. Authors say their data provides some support for that hypothesis. Both patients had considerable CAR T-cell expansion, basal ganglia hypometabolism was observed, and cyclophosphamide ameliorated symptoms. However, authors say symptom reversibility and hypometabolism argue for other mechanisms not yet described. In a commentary, Julianne Gust of the University of Washington in Seattle says the clinical findings for all patients reported to date is indeed most consistent with Parkinsonism. Gust says late onset of Parkinsonism after CAR T-cell infusion is not so surprising if other pathogenic processes are considered. In hypoxic injury or stroke involving the basal ganglia, Parkinsonism may emerge months or years later, presumably due to reorganization of neuronal circuits following the acute injury. So CRS or ICANs may precipitate an insult to the striatum that may result in a movement disorder that emerges later and then resolves, possibly spontaneously. Gust describes the remission of Parkinsonism following cyclophosphamide treatment reported by Graham and co-authors as encouraging, but adds that the result should be treated with equipoise until further evidence becomes available. Toward that end, Gust says patients receiving BCMA-directed CAR T-cells should be monitored closely for development of unusual toxicities. Assessment should include serial neurologic exams and advanced neuroimaging. Presence of CAR targets in the brain needs to be reassessed as more sophisticated modalities are developed. And efforts are now underway to ensure more transparent case reporting. Gust says those efforts may reduce confusion about the true incidence of these rare toxicities. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.